0: What will I become? Senwa Saga,
1: Hellblade Two. Play it now with Game Pass. Hi, how can I help you? I'm trying to get some items together for a spell, and I'm having some trouble finding some of the ingredients. So I was, I, but I'm not sure. Maybe these things have different names. But I'm looking for hinbane.
3: Um, we don't have that.
1: Okay. And um, hemlock. No. No. Okay. They asked for poplar leaves, but I guess I get this off a tree. And they said something called calbane.
3: We don't have that either.
1: Okay. Are these common ingredients or is this really obscure stuff?
3: I don't know. I don't think you can buy hemlock.
1: Oh, really? Because it's poison?
3: Right. Oh. I'm, I'm not sure. What
1: about belladonna? But is that legal?
3: I don't think belladonna is either.
1: This is going to be hard to do. But if I can't get these ingredients, how can I turn myself into a werewolf? It's actually quite unlike
0: anything we've ever seen before.
1: Hello, and welcome to Monster Talk, the podcast that talks about monster stories and their links with science. I'm Blake Smith, and together with Ben Radford, Managing Editor of Skeptical Inquirer, and Dr. Karen Stolzno, Skeptical Investigator, Blogger, and Skeptic, we critically examine stories about monsters and interview experts who can shed light on these dark mysteries. Today, we're talking about werewolves, magical creatures that can turn from human to wolf, or even into a hybrid wolf-man. We'll be joined by Dr. Brian Regal, who'll discuss the idea that Darwin's origin of the species turned the werewolf from a serious fear into a creature of fantasy in the minds of most people. Today also marks the first episode of Monster Talk, produced in partnership with Skeptic Magazine. We'd like to thank Skeptic for putting their invisible hand to work in support of our program. We hope you enjoy it.
0: Monster Talk
1: werewolves I love werewolves werewolves are cool Yeah. the werewolves for the 1941 movie Wolfman with Lon Chaney Jr I, I didn't love that werewolf that much it seemed like a gyp that he got cursed with it but in modern literature werewolves seem to have a lot more control over their transformations which is what you know that's really the important part and they're almost indestructible um, mm-hmm. they get to mm-hmm. uh, they, except for silver nothing seems to hurt them very much I remember watching the, the why, one, silver? why silver? Hmm. So maybe uh, it is uh, a pseudoscience link. Well, I think actually in real science, though, silver is also uh, kind of an antibiotic.
2: Yeah, I think it was used as an antibiotic in the.
1: I see it on pseudoscience pages so much, I don't trust it. I'll have to do the research on that. So, you know, and that's all. You that- have to do research? Blake, Blake,
2: come on. We, we don't do research for these things. Come on.
1: It all comes down to the 1941 movie. Before the 1941 movie, silver did not kill were- werewolves, as far as I know, and-, and werewolves was not a curse.
0: That's the source then. Or I shouldn't have asked.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that is the source. That is the source. Um,
0: but you're right. It's well, taken in various forms today with colloidal silver. My mum makes her own.
1: Are you serious?
0: <laughs> yeah. Thousands of people are going to hear this.
2: <laughs> is, it, is it almost like uh, mercury? I mean, I, I, I'm not familiar with that.
0: Well, it's a heavy metal, isn't it? So it's mm. dangerous.
1: There's a process where you basically take the silver and put it into a fluid, and then you drink the fluid, and then it's supposed to uh, help you be more healthy. I know there's a guy who turned blue from drinking it.
0: Yes, I can't <laughs> remember the name of that condition. Uh, His name was Smurf. <laughs> it can turn you gray.
1: Yeah, yeah, it turns you really gray. I
0: think uh, It used to be used uh, in more orthodox medicine in nasal drops, I think, for sinus conditions. Uh, in the 40s and 50s, uh, until people started turning gray.
1: Yeah, turning gray is no good. I mean, this guy really does look like a smurf. That's no joke. His name is Paul Carrison of Madeira, California. And this, the, the condition is called argeria. Argyria. Yeah, and it makes your skin turn blue. It's kind of silvery blue. Uh, and they, they're using colloidal silver as an antibiotic, and that's what causes it.
0: I guess it's absorbed into the body, and uh, we're unable to. To get rid of it
1: right now most people don't take enough i think to have that happen but this guy was apparently rubbing it on his skin and taking it daily so uh yeah.
2: but, but our guest today is talking about werewolves
1: yes that's true <laughs> yes but i think just for the record that if the 1941 theory about silver is true then paul carrison of madeira california is immune from werewolf attacks
0: <laughs> that is true
1: I'm
2: certain he will not be attacked by a werewolf. I, I think maybe. Why
0: use the <laughs>
2: I'll put money on
1: it. Yeah, I think you're probably right. So, The Beast of Bray Road is the most recent um, werewolf-related uh, sightings that I've, I'm aware of. Tell us about those. The Beast of Bray Road is a book by Linda Godfrey that describes a mysterious animal witnessed in over 200 sightings, at least according to Monster Quest. The beast is described as a wolf-like animal that can run on four legs or on two legs. And it's alleged to haunt the woods of Minnesota. And it's claimed that it weighs around 600 pounds. MonsterQuest did an episode on it which failed to produce the creature, but which highlighted the paucity of evidence outside the eyewitness testimony, which we skeptics know was notoriously unreliable. Now, and
2: and they know that it's a werewolf because they actually saw the transformation, or they just assumed it's a werewolf?
1: Um, I believe the uh, actual sightings were of a wolf-human hybrid, sort of a beast-man.
2: So, so there was – I mean, I'm not familiar with the case, but, I mean, was there was there some sort of before and after, or was no, no, it just no, sort no, of – that looks like something that might be a combination of a man and a wolf?
1: Well, it's a hairy biped resembling a wolf-human hybrid that can walk on its hind legs – uh, it could be up to seven feet tall. It runs really, really fast. No one has seen it transform. And I have to say, it seemed to me that it could have been a, a bear just as easily as a, a werewolf. So, and I guess they're calling it the beast of Bray Road instead of the werewolf of Bray Road because it, it hasn't actually had a transformation sighting. My take on it is there's a lot of episodes of Monster Quest which are, could be a bear or a Bigfoot. I, and I'm inclined to think bear, but that's just because I've seen bears and, you know. <laughs> They seem pretty real, but the the Bigfoots I still haven't seen. So, what
0: other where creatures exist in folklore?
1: There's a goat man, <laughs> not the one on Saturday Night Live, but there's actually a, a, a myth about a goat man. So,
0: weird bears as well. Weird bears. Yes,
1: we're bears. Yes, yes.
0: It's a difficult one to get out with my accent.
1: I understand. That's you know I I I used to play a lot of role playing games and uh you know being a werebear bear is really great for your uh, defense and offense. Mm-hmm. I imagine especially the offense. Yeah, well you can do a lot of extra damage when your hands turn into claws, but then you have to put your sword <laughs> down. But it's okay because you're immune to most damage except magical. So that's all good.
2: Well, yeah, you know, I, I, but I think that, you know, there's a long tradition of were animals, obviously not just as as Karen points out, not just wolves. Uh, you know, there are stories of people turning into, you know, snakes and birds and, you know, all sorts of different things. Uh, I think that the uh the the obviously the werewolf is the most popular version certainly coming from from the European traditions. Uh, but it's my understanding that, you know, that depending on on which which culture you're looking at? You know, it may have different stories of where, you know, where worms. For all now, a wereworm, worm that would be cool. I turned into a worm. Where sheep? There, yes. There,
1: the, the goat man is from Maryland, and Lauren Coleman wrote in his book Weird Virginia that the bunny man sightings from Fairfax County, Virginia, are a variant on the goat men encounters.
0: Always cool animals.
1: Yeah, that's right. You you don't see wereworms. Although I think Bunny Man's a little odd. So you know, for that matter. Although Moth Man's not really a, a moth human hybrid. Uh, I always thought a flying man shaped moth was kind of odd too. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I would expect something like really, you know, a coyote or a bear. Something with some offensive power is a lot more exciting as a monster than something that's a, a vegetarian, for example. <laughs>
2: Well, I mean I, I think that part of you know, part of the, the interest in them is that uh, with with something like, you know, any where animal that where the other half is a human is that, you know, part of the, the scary and intriguing thing is that the person next to you could be a werewolf. Um, if, if one of their forms is a natural, normal human form, um, then, uh, then that sort of adds another element of, of sort of fear and intrigue to it because it's not immediately identifiable as, as a werewolf because, of course, uh, it could be during the next full moon or the next time you know, it gets angry or uh, is, is annoyed by a reporter named Jack McGee, uh, it turns into a, a monster.
1: I guess the, the legend of the werewolf prior to the 1941 movie, though, has its ties in magic. And the original stories that I used to I used to read a lot of werewolf books, and most of the stories about werewolves involved people who wanted to become werewolves, having to go through rather intense magical rituals. They had to get fur belts and put on an ointment and do a ceremony, um, or they had to have been cursed by the gods. Something special had to happen to make somebody go through this transformation.
0: Okay, I thought it was uncontrollable, or is that just in other only, leg- Yeah, That's
1: just in modern ish- times. That's just in modern times. Except for the, you know, the guy who goes mad becomes a wolf. But by, what happens is, in, uh, Sabin Baron Gould's book of werewolves, he talks about, about the first half of the book is about werewolf cases. And they usually sound like large wolves that seem, uh, strangely, uh, s- sapient. The wolves seem unusually cunning. Or perhaps they seem a little bit supernatural. And this is, you know, these are all European legends. But later on in his book, he switches over to talk about murderers. And he breaks it up into groups of murderers who kill people and eat them. Murderers who, you know, go crazy and kill people and eat them. And murderers who just kill people. And so some of these people seem to have, this, it's the cannibalistic, crazy person who thinks they're a werewolf as part of their psychosis. Um seems to be, you know, part of the... the Lore just as well as those animals that are mysteriously intelligent wolves, what is a werewolf and how it attacks is a different legend than how do you become a werewolf, right? So uh, was it, is it satanic? Is it magic? It's Whatever it is, it's not you get bit by a werewolf and you become a werewolf, which is okay. Although I, I like the new viral version. I, I think you know it makes great fiction, and I'm actually pretty excited about the upcoming uh, remake of the 1941 movie. Is that
2: Benicio de Toro's?
1: Oh, it is. Yep. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I'm excited about that.
2: Apparently, there's been it's been plagued with production problems and feuds and stuff. So it'd be interesting to see whether.
1: Would you say it was
2: cursed? Ooh! yeah. Well, only <laughs> on, only in so far as most films are cursed on some level.
1: Yeah. Well, maybe it won't be good, but I, I, it looked cool. The special effects look nice. Do we have anything else intelligent to say about werewolves?
2: Really not.
1: Apparently not.
0: <laughs> Monster dog.
1: Today we're interviewing Dr. Brian Regal of Keene University in New Jersey. Dr. Regal recently went to England to give a lecture about the relationship between the Origin of Species and the legend of werewolves. Dr. Regal, before we start talking about Darwin and werewolves, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background?
3: Oh, okay, uh, sure. I'm. Um assistant professor for the history of science technology and medicine here at kane university in new jersey and uh... i have a phd in american intellectual history my subfield is history of science uh... let's see i've been here at kane for about three years now before that i was at a small engineering college in new york uh... called the tci college of technology for about seven years and uh... i write on pseudoscience evolution history Uh, General history, biology, creationism, all the good stuff.
1: Great. So we found you through your Science Magazine article where it was was an interview with you talking about your presentation on the role of Darwin and werewolves. Right. Um, And I wanted to know, can you give us kind of an overview of that presentation?
3: Sure. Um, I, I gave uh, a pair of presentations, actually, over the summer. One at the British Society for the History of Science, their annual meeting uh, at the Le- University of Leicester. And then at the University College London, they have a, at the, the Grant Museum, which is um, in the Darwin Theater, uh, they have a, an ongoing public lecture series where they bring in scientists and historians uh, to speak about the various work that they do. And I gave uh, a talk there in which I kind of, uh, not exactly tongue-in-cheek, but but not to be taken too seriously, the idea that the advent of uh, Darwinian evolution theory in the mid-19th century helped put an end to the belief in some quarters in certain kinds of monsters. My work as a historian has always been on the history of evolution. And my from my very first book, which was on uh, the life of Henry Fairfield Osborne, the famous American paleoanthropologist, uh, I I began noticing very sort of interesting non-scientific aspects of evolutionary biology, and particularly in how scientists and lay people interpreted these things and that there was more to discussions of human evolution and human origins than rocks and fossils and strata. And as I was writing uh, the, the, that, that book, I began to notice these kind of other interesting tendrils of ideas that were attached to it at the edges. And I, I, knew, he wanted to get, I, I knew I wanted to get back to that, and eventually I started focusing in on this, and I discovered monster hunting. And I was fascinated by it because here you have these people who are doing something very interesting. And when I say these people, I mean both professional scientists and amateur naturalists. They're trying to prove the existence of something which the mainstream tells them doesn't exist, yet they want to keep looking for it anyway. And in my work on uh, the history of monster hunting, the first paper I did on it came out last January in the, the journal Annals of Science, uh, focused on the life of Grover Krantz. And as I was looking at Krantz's life and the, and the world of monster hunting, it struck me that while there are a lot of groups that, and individuals who look for creatures like Bigfoot and the Yeti and the Skookum and the Swamp Ape and, and, and these sort of related cryptids, nobody seemed to be worried about werewolves anymore. And I thought, well, where have all the werewolves gone why isn't why aren't we worried about werewolves anymore? And as I began to think about it more, it, it struck me that what happens is if you look at the writings on werewolves up to the mid nineteenth century they're generally believed and even by scholars, but then, after Darwinian evolution comes along, they begin to go into decline, and reports of werewolves, especially in the industrialized world, begin to drop off dramatically. And so I thought, well that's very interesting. You know, you have people who are looking at the basic idea of the werewolf which which says you have a combination, a composite of a of a a wolf or a dog and a human. But good Darwinian evolution tells us that while dogs and humans are vaguely related, because they're all living things, that dogs and humans are not close related, and you can't get a dog-human hybrid. However, what you can get after the advent of Darwinian evolution theory is the ape-human hybrid. Uh, In fact, the, the connections between humans and primates is the underlying sort of working paradigm of human evolution. And I thought, well, that's very interesting because here we have an example of the old heroic narrative of, you know, science. Uh, science comes along and sort of defeats belief in in in, in the supernatural and fantasies like monsters. But then, if you finish that sentence, what happens is it undermines the heroic narrative, because what after the after the werewolves and mermaids and and these sort of creatures kind of get brushed off to the side. Uh, by evolution theory, that allows for a whole new set of monsters to, to appear and to be believed in. And so along comes the Yeti and then Bigfoot and these other sort of anomalous primates. And while the vast majority of the scientific community still rejects them as being genuine creatures, at least what they have over these monsters of the past is a basic scientific justification. Because if we ever find out that Bigfoot does exist, we'll see that it's some kind of primate. And so this sort of monster is allowed to exist because of evolution theory, while monsters like werewolves get put down by uh, evolution theory.
0: Uh, Brian, how did the idea of well werewolves arise and how far, far back did these uh, beliefs go? And could you tell us about some of the beliefs and theories about werewolves that existed pre-origin of species?
3: Uh, I I think I got most of your question there. It's just a little bit garbled. But if you look at the vast majority, if not all, of the reports of Bigfoot-like creatures, and I'll use the term Bigfoot or anomalous primate to cover all these things. If you look at the vast run of what the the, the evidence that that your average cryptozoologist will point to and say, well, here's the evidence of, of Bigfoot way back in time, you don't see any mention of apes prior to the middle of the 19th century. There are discussions of monkeys and primates and apes, but the ape has yet to be connected to the sort of monstrous creature. Uh, Apes are generally viewed prior to the 19th century as, in some places, tricksters and sort of comical characters. Uh, In other cases, uh, they sort of stand in for representations of all of the dark aspects of of the human psyche, but you don't really, you're hard-pressed to find any sort of Bigfoot, Sasquatch-related stories prior to the 19th century, prior to the advent of evolutionary theory, wherein these creatures are linked to apes. They're always linked to wild men rather than apes.
0: Okay, I was actually asking about werewolves. It must be my accent here. Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) I was asking about the beliefs and theories about werewolves that existed pre-origin of species.
3: Oh, I see. Okay. Well, there's there's so many. I mean, the, when we think of the werewolf, we tend to think of the kind of European uh variation on the theme you know from the from the movie the wolfman uh even a man who is pure of heart and says his prayers at night can become a wolf when the wolfbane blooms and the august moon shines bright uh that's probably the most famous piece of werewolf poetry uh, most people don't realize was actually written by the screenwriter for the film the wolfman uh it's not actually ancient at all uh, but we have these—we have uh, traditions of where creatures, creatures that turn in, or humans that turn into various creatures, uh, around the world, back to the ancient world. Uh, the, world the word lycanthropy comes from an ancient Greek tradition of a, of a of a king who gets turned into a wolf because of various wrongdoing. Um, but you, what what I found interesting about the, and and there's no one real werewolf canon of belief. Uh, there's a lot of different ideas from a lot of different places that can all get thrown into one general concept of uh, of a human changing in some sort of supernatural way into uh, some form of a wolf, sometimes a complete wolf, sometimes just a hairy human. Um, but if you look at the, the discussions of werewolfery, in say like the Middle Ages and into the Renaissance, there's a really interesting thing goes on, because already by the 1500s, you're already seeing sort of learned discourses on on the nature of werewolves, where they're mostly discounted. Uh, they there are authors who say, well. Uh, these are probably people who just think they're werewolves. Uh, so we think of psychological explanations for various phenomena as being a modern thing, but all, all the way back to the 14th century, uh, you're already getting these first hints at, at scholars saying, "Well, you know, maybe they're not really becoming wolves. Maybe they're they just think they are." Uh, there's also theological discussions, uh, which have a which have a really interesting rationalism to them, where they say, "Well, well, only God can change one." creature into another, and therefore humans can't do it themselves, and demons couldn't do it, and so you can't have a werewolf because God would never turn a person into a wolf. Uh, And so there there are these kind of theological um, disagreements on whether or not these creatures can exist, and they
2: start fairly early on. Well, oh, that, that's interesting because, as I understand it, you know, that, that centuries ago werewolves were often associated with uh, with magic, witchcraft, Satan, things like that. Right. Uh, yet, of course, the modern Bigfoot is, is almost completely stripped of, of anything like that. You, you don't really hear, uh, you know, stories of Bigfoot, um, you know, having having those, those sorts of traditions. Uh, and yet, of course, people do still believe in magic. People do still believe in witchcraft and the occult and New Age. Uh, how do you how do you how do you reconcile that? Well, there are actually uh, supernatural aspects
3: to to uh, anomalous primates, to Bigfoot and, and Sasquatch in particular. Native um, Native American uh, tribal lore they see these creatures as spirit-like things. Uh, there are even some examples where where uh, a few rare examples where uh, it's thought that that humans turn into uh, Bigfoot uh although those are those are mostly relegated to native american uh traditions and there are those who um, mostly on the fringes of of anomalous primary research who claim a a sort of ghostly connection for bigfoot uh ufo connection for bigfoot and while bigfoot is generally seen as a kind of pastoral creature uh there are traditions where they where they act quite violently and, and act as violently, violently as any werewolf would. So there, so do, there are there are these kind of strands within uh, Bigfoot lore.
2: So are you saying that there's 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 strands of Bigfoot lore in which Bigfoot is associated with like full moons and bloodthirst and aversion to 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 silver and garlic and things? Well, no, not not the sort of traditional classic
3: werewolf stuff, but in that. There are Bigfoot traditions in which the creature is not seen as a as a biological entity, rather than a spirit entity.
2: Okay, but but I mean, of course, I mean most of the Bigfoot people that I have run into, and probably the ones that you know, wouldn't wouldn't accept that. No, no, uh, the the yeah, the, the I, I agree. The the
3: majority of. Of current bigfoot uh, enthusiasts tend also to discount the, the spiritual aspect of all this, and they see it as a, uh, a pretty straightforward biological entity rather than some sort of supernatural.
1: There is a there is a contingent within bigfoot. Uh, I don't want to call it fandom, but within the bigfoot community, that mm-hmm. thinks that there is a, a paranormal aspect, and whether that's oh, sure, whether course. that's magical or UFO related or multi-dimensional bigfoot, you know. Be- Beckyard's stuff comes to mind, but the uh, uh, it's out there. It's just not the it's not the mainstream of Bigfoot, and, and right. it was kind of like if you think of like Bigfoot uh, studies are not really mainstream anyway. Um, then it's like a microcosm within that, I guess, right? I
3: mean, sure. Yeah there, there there is the there is the sort of. Uh, we could break the the world of Bigfoot uh, and, uh, enthusiasm atru- amateur naturalists into two basic chunks: the genuine genuine biological entity school and the and the supernatural school. And the supernatural school uh, is far and away the smaller of the two.
1: Gotcha. I was going to we we talked about this briefly, but the uh, the idea of. Uh a werewolf bites you, and then you, it becomes infectious. That seems really common in all the modern lore. But doesn't that also come back from the 1941 movie?
3: Yeah, there's a there's a lot of, there's a lot of what people think is genuine uh, medieval or Renaissance era uh, werewolf lore that really is actually quite modern. It's a product of the cinema rather than than history. And the silver bullet, the full moon, the garlic, uh, most of it is. And, and the same thing holds for vampires. Uh, the vast majority of what modern vampire enthusiasts believe to be uh, genuine historical vampire lore is all from the 20th century cinema and from Anne Rice novels.
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> the uh, the reason I ask is I went back and I had re- a long time ago I read um, Sabine Baron goulds uh, Book of Werewolves, Mm-hmm. And I was noticing when I was studying up for this interview, you know, it came out in 1865, and Origin of Species came out in 1859. And already by 1865, Baron Gould says that he thought um, he hadn't seen any werewolves. One, well, he got lots of stories. You know, he found more cases where it was – there were people who had gone mad and killed, people who were cannibals. Mm-hmm. Um, but in, in all of my research, it seemed that up until that 1941 movie – People who wanted to become werewolves chose to become werewolves for the most part through magical ritual or some other effort, or they were cursed in some way, but not in a sort of viral way. Is that consistent with what you found?
3: Uh, yes, that's, that's, that's essentially correct. There is the That's why I, I said before that in, in my discussion of Darwin and werewolves, uh, you sort of have to take a little bit, Uh, tongue-in-cheek and not take it too seriously because werewolves have never really been considered products of the natural world or biological world rather they're products of the supernatural world Um, and so it's it it, that poses a a difficulty for historians of science and and cryptozoologists alike that you have this creature which is a part-time monster you know creatures like bigfoot or sea serpents or or even mermaids um, they exist in their totality all the time. They don't change one form to another, whereas the werewolf has a tradition of changing from a human form into a non-human form. And there's no, there are no animals. That, as much as we would like to believe it, there's really no such thing as shape-shifting in the kind of cinematic way that most people are familiar with. There are animals that change parts of their look temporarily. They can change color or they can change shape slightly when they're attacking or being attacked, but there really are no um, genuine shape-shifters where uh, a, a particular individual organism can completely change its species into something else.
0: So before the mid-19th century, how seriously were werewolves taken as a danger, do you think, socially?
3: Uh, well, that's, it's an interesting question. They certainly were believed throughout most of the world, um, but I think people uh, certainly feared witches more than they feared werewolves. If you look at the history of witch crazes, there is really no, there was really never a werewolf craze. Uh, there and, and there are only a few, um, only a few existing record trial records of of werewolves on trial, and and. And the ones that do exist, it, it seems like the various magistrates who presided over these trials really didn't accept the existence of werewolves. And, and there's one famous one from the Balkans region um, where the this old man is called in to, to give give evidence at a trial uh, for something else. And in the middle of the trial, he just sort of blurts out, oh, you know, and I'm a werewolf and sort of stuns the crowd and the magistrate asks him to explain and the old guy starts going on about how he's a werewolf and he has werewolf friends and he's been to he's visited hell and talked to Satan and done all these things and you get the idea from the from the court transcripts that the the magistrate is more annoyed than scared by this. Sort of, you know, can somebody get the old guy the crazy old guy out of here. We have witches to burn and he's, he's, uh, sort of, he's sort of using up our witch-burning times uh, on, on the silly werewolf uh, idea. So it, it, it sort of depended upon where you were. Uh, the, there was a general belief in werewolves, and people were sort of afraid of encountering them, but I, I don't think the fear was as great as the fear of witches or other entities that were popular at the time.
2: I think he was probably just trying to angle for a mistrial,
3: um, would be my guess.
2: That's possible, that's
3: a pretty dangerous ploy though to, yeah. uh, that's standing awful close to the flames.
2: Yes. Does your research have uh, implications? Because you talked about the, the, the whole notion of the, the animal-human hybrids. Uh, what does your, what's your position on some of the, the non-hybrids, such as, for example, Nessie or the Duende of Latin America or other, other things? I mean, I assume that much of your argument still holds up, even though they're, they're not necessarily something that would have, been, would have had cold water thrown on them by the origin of species. We took it all.
3: Some people enjoy the waves or
2: whatever, uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum
1: physics audio book. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand and probably won't understand. That's our whole show. (laughs) So join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and WagOn.
3: Right. Well, it's it's an interesting question, and and yes, the whenever you start talking about these sort of natural monsters, if we if we might call them those uh, things like Nessie or Bigfoot, which are not so not generally thought of as being supernatural, the the formula I think still holds, because what happens is, as I said before, we have this historians have this notion of the heroic narrative. Where you have a grand idea which tells us something good about, uh, some aspect of the past. Like, take World War II for example. Uh, the heroic narrative of World War II is that you have the evil of the Nazis and the Japanese Empire must be defeated by the forces of good. And that's what happens. The forces of good triumph over the, for the, over the evils of, of, uh, uh, of evil. And so we can all look back on that and feel very good about it. In the history of science, we have similar heroic narratives. And one of, the, one of the central heroic narratives of the history of science is that the world lives in darkness and superstition, and suddenly you get the Renaissance, and then you get the scientific revolution and the Enlightenment, and science comes along and banishes all this kind of... Uh, believing in the supernatural and, and theological explanations for things and the cold hard truth of reason and empiricism empiricism comes along. And it makes us it makes us happy about science. Because, well science is good, science is progressive, it's forward moving, and it leaves bad things in the past and we move forward into the light and goodness of the future. And what the history of monsters does, what the history of cryptozoology does, as a number of other things do, is kind of throw that heroic narrative into a bit of chaos, because yes, while science does tend to banish things like mermaids and and werewolves and other such creatures, it opens up belief in other kinds of monsters. It simply substitutes one group of monsters for another. It doesn't banish the notion of monsters completely. And what happens is that as the werewolves... Sort of get pushed off the stage, uh, Bigfoot and and the Yeti and Nessie and Ogopogo and uh, other similar creatures. Macilian Mc- Bembe come along and get up on stage, and while science might the scientific mainstream might not accept these creatures completely, at least they have a kind of underlying scientific justification, and so they don't go away completely.
0: So, uh, could I ask what sort of feedback have you received regarding your theory so far, and have you had any opposition to your theory? Um,
3: uh, the the feedback had actually been pretty good. I was I was very I was sort of caught off surprise when uh, my work got noticed at all. Quite frankly, uh, USA Today picked up on it, and then uh, Science uh, the uh, the american academy for the Advancement of science picked up on it and then once it hit the internet it, it started getting repeated on dozens of different uh... websites and mostly the reaction was really quite positive people sort of got the joke a little bit and kind of played with it um... a few people uh... said well you, you know you can't do this. this is this is a bad idea because uh... uh... werewolves are supernatural and bigfoot's a, a real creature and they, my, one of my favorite reactions was somebody wrote in to a website and said that this guy, he doesn't know what he's talking about. I just saw Twilight, and there are werewolves in Twilight, so he doesn't know what he's talking about.
1: Huh.
3: <laughs> so that was fun. Thank you. But, uh, well, but, I, ten, but generally speaking, the, the reaction was pretty positive.
2: I, I think that, that anecdote you just gave is an interesting one because in many ways, as you know, what you find when you start looking for these creatures uh, is that you begin uh, – you, you, you may start out looking for the actual physical specimen itself. But uh, if it's not there, as many of these don't seem to be, then what you end up studying is the phenomenology of the creatures. You start, right. start ta- looking at the folklore and the and the depictions of it in, in artwork and films and whatever else. The guys comment that, well, werewolves. Werewolves are still around. I saw one last night. Um, there's sort of an element of truth to that because Darwin did not kill off the werewolves. They're they're still very much with us in, sure. in books and whatever else, uh, and of course uh, Bigfoot as well. And so it seems to me that, that what's going to happen is that uh, many of these uh, many of these old creatures that unicorns, leprechauns, uh, centaurs, what have you, so, you know, some of them have died off. I mean, I don't, I don't know. If there's been any credible uh, dragon sightings recently, but, but uh, there have been werewolf sightings. Yes, Uh, and so can you talk some about that? Uh, Yeah, well, this is another sort of hole in the
3: in the facade of the heroic narrative of science banishing all foolish thinking. Uh, As recently as uh, I believe it was nineteen ninety nine, two thousand, in Wisconsin, the Beast of Bray Road, Uh, people believe they saw a creature which was a werewolf, and this is not, you know, was not in some third world country uh, amongst illiterate people. It was in the heart of the industrial world. And so, you know, there's still people out there who believe these creatures are real.
1: And there's, there's Goatman. Don't forget Goatman.
3: Right. And, you know, the Chucacabra and, uh, similar, you know, the skunk ape all, all across North America. We still have these creatures.
2: So do you think these things exist or not?
3: Personally, I, I got to say, I don't think they do.
2: Oh, no. <laughs> uh, I'm, a his, I'm a historian. I'm not a
3: biologist. Um, I, I accept that tomorrow we might find one, and if we do, I'll come back on the show and say, I'm sorry, I was wrong, uh, but of the evidence I've seen so far, which some of, uh, some of it is really quite intriguing, um, but I don't think they're there. I think we would have found one by now
2: well as a, as a historian of science, let me just do a quick follow up on that because um, as as i 'm sure you 're aware, one of the fa- both famous and favorite uh, animals that cryptozoologists like to hold up is the coelacant. i can 't swing a swing a uh, a cat uh, in my library without hitting a book on cryptozoology that doesn 't just put that front and center as being right well, obviously scientists are wrong about this, and and I keep thinking well hold on here there 's a very big difference between. You know, a creature that was known to exist was thought to be extinct, was rediscovered in 1938, and so, I, I, to, to my mind, the coelacanth is really sort of a red herring, um, <laughs> in a sort of weird, in a weird pun way. Um, <laughs> no, uh, I would agree with you completely. I mean, uh, so but what's what's your thought on on the on the implications, if any, of the coelacanth to cryptozoology? Right. Well, I'm. I have a number
3: of friends who are cryptozoologists, and they always get mad when I say these sorts of things. But they, I hope they know I, I say it as a loyal opposition, not as a not as an angry uh, uh, tri- debunker. But the problem of the coelacanth is, first of all, it was not discovered; it was not found because someone was looking for it. It was found accidentally. No one had any idea this fish might exist until someone stumbled across it. Uh, there was a fossil record of these creatures, but no one thought, you know, there, are, there still must be pseudocampus swimming around. If only we could find one. Um, and a lot of those examples, like the Okapi is another one, uh, these creatures that are discovered that are not actually being looked for. Um, and so there, there aren't that many examples of the classic cryptozoological discovery where someone thinks, I think animal X must exist in this particular environment, in this particular place, and we'll go there and then we find it. Um, The Patterson film, notwithstanding, and all those Bigfoot uh, footprints, notwithstanding, we haven't yet done that. And what gets very interesting about this is that non-cryptozoologists, biologists, zoologists, they find undiscovered creatures all the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, Hardly a day goes by when some unknown uh, biological entity is discovered: a new beetle, a new flower, uh, a new microorganism. Uh, but nobody really gets that outside. Excuse me. Nobody really gets that worked up about it outside the scientific community. Uh, it's only the sort of the bigger animals that, that people really are sort of fascinated by. You know, oh, a new beetle. So what? You know, I got beetles all over my house. and You got to crow about it. Uh, they want sort of the big showy animals.
2: And, of course, there's a big difference between positing a population of 12-foot-tall giant uh, humanoids in North America and positing a population of fish off the Comerce Islands. Right. These are just two, two very different animals. Right. And But in the end, the
3: beauty part of all this is tomorrow we might find one, and then, you know, we have to reconsider. Uh, but until we do, it's just an idea. It's just a theory that these things are there.
0: So with these uh, these modern sightings, what do you think? I know you said you're not a biologist, but what do you think they may have been?
3: Oh, um, they're probably, there's probably a dozen different answers to that. People see something, they think it's something else. Um, again, like I said, I, I can't really... Uh, my, my animal recognition skills are not what they should be. Um, but uh, I've seen examples on film, unambiguous examples on film where, for example, bears wander into communities of houses and people see them and they shoot them either with a video camera or they shoot them with a gun. Uh, and I, gotta, I have to think that if there are populations, there are breeding populations of anomalous primates out there, we, w- we wouldn't be having this conversation. It would just be another animal that we were aware of.
1: That makes sense. I think so. <laughs> of course, we're all skeptics. <laughs> right. Now, you're, you're, you've made it clear that this um, paper uh, or presentation is lighthearted. Uh, yet right. I, it seems like there's some truth to it that, that the correlation between the rise of uh, – well, and I think that maybe because the rise of Darwin also represents the rise of uh, more materialism uh, and how that materialism can sort of drive out through education, some of these mythic ideas. Yet, clearly, we seem to have some – Need for myth and monsters, uh, mm-hmm. but as a historian, how do you, how would you go about falsifying such a theory, or how could you prove your theory uh, if if you were trying to make it more serious?
3: Well, actually, in a way, I am. One of the things uh, the research project I'm working on right now is that what most people don't realize uh, is the role that monsters played in the development of evolutionary theory. Uh, there is a long tradition. I, I'm, I'm arguing in, in this project that that the the attempt by scholars to engage with monstrous creatures, going all the way back to Pliny the Elder uh, in the Greco-Roman world, helps pave the way for modern evolutionary thinking unintentionally. Because if you can, if you think of ideas about species differentiation and species transmutation, uh, and 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 where do monsters come from, you're ser- essentially setting up for belief in evolutionary theory. So there, there is a long tradition of creatures like uh, sea serpents, for example, uh, and mermaids, which played uh, a, a really big but, but now sort of forgotten role in, in the late 19th century discussion of evolution. Uh, what happens is anti-evolutionists say, well, if this Darwin guy is right... The, that would mean that you have to believe in, in, in these sort of phantasms like, like werewolves or sea serpents, and we know those are just childish delusions, and so therefore uh, the world should be, if, if Darwin is right, the world should be full up with sea monsters and, and mermaids and hippogriffs and other such creatures. Uh, and, and so since they don't, uh, Darwin must be wrong. And then pro-evolutionists took the same idea and they said, well, wait a minute, the world was once filled up with such creatures and we have the fossil evidence for it. Uh, the, the plesiosaurs and the ichthyosaurs uh, once swam the seas as majestically as any sea serpent and the dinosaurs roamed the land were as, were as frightening as anything out of Greek mythology. And Archaeopteryx, uh, we have the fossil evidence for it. So Darwin does show that monsters were real. Uh, and so there there was this, there, this really interesting sort of battle that goes on uh, between the pro- and anti-evolution camps using monsters to beat each other up with.
0: Hmm. So what do you think uh, Darwin would have thought of uh, the notion of werewolves and other animals like that?
3: Well, Darwin doesn't really address... The issue. Uh, my feeling is that he probably would not have believed in them because there are a number of places in his in his published works and in his um, unpublished correspondence where he where he says I don't believe that something can be half of one thing and half of another. Uh, although there is a really interesting quote where he's writing to a naturalist friend of his, and uh, this is in the eighteen forties, and. A uh, a French book on, on both animal and human monsters had recently come out uh and by Jaffre Saint Hilaire, and he says to his his Darwin says to his correspondent, I just finished reading Hilaire's book on, on animal monsters, and a and a nasty, curious subject it is. So he sort of had a little bit of interest in it, but I think in the end he kind of dismissed it.
2: What's your take on the on the beast of Gavadon? On the I'm sorry. The the Beast of Gavidon, the the French uh, werewolf story um, in eighteen, I, I think seventeen something, seventeen sixty four. Yeah, uh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, uh, again with with all of
3: these with all these stories, if we if we accept that you can't have a a, a natural canid human hybrid, or if we accept that even even on a supernatural level, uh, one species can't shape shift into another, it had to have been something else. You know, we, we know there's a long history of people using the supernatural to gain political ascendancy or to outwit enemies or simply to be able to steal neighboring land when they know these things don't exist, but they, they know that that society at large might accept it, and so they'll accuse people of doing something, which is essentially the basis of most of the witch trials. They, they really had nothing to do with witches at all. It was much more political and cultural.
1: Mm-hmm. The, um, it's been my experience that there's a, a strong contingent of young earth creationists who seem very very interested in finding some kind of living dinosaur or monster mm-hmm. to disprove evolution sure. have you looked into that?
3: I have, uh, we here at Cain a couple of years ago we had some people from uh, Answers in Genesis came to, to give, give a talk uh, the, the student Christian Association had invited them and I, I I saw the signs for it, and I, at first I wasn't going to go, but then I thought, "Well, you know, I am supposed to be the history science guy, so I'll, I'll I'll go and I'll sit in the back and I'll be quiet, and I won't say anything, and I'll just let them you know say their spiel and I, And I went and I got there a little bit late, and I walked in, and there were exactly five people there, <laughs> two of them were the two pre- presenters, and two of them were students, and the fifth one was me. Wow. Uh, And so I, I, you know, I I tried to keep to my, you know, I I wasn't going there for a fight. Um, I just wanted to listen.
2: They should have offered free donuts.
3: (laughs) I think they actually did have free donuts. Even that wasn't enough to get anybody in there. But um, they're they're talking, they're showing a PowerPoint presentation. And about three quarters of the way through, the guy said something, I forget what it was. It was something about carbon dating that I knew he was just factually wrong on. And I had sort of reached my limit. It was it was like nine o'clock at night. I you know, I'd been teaching and reading and writing all day and I just wasn't in the mood for it. And I said, Well, I gotta say something so I put my hand up. And we got into this whole conversation and and at one point I saw I, I said to the guy, Well, you know, I didn't really come here to take over the, the talk I didn't want to uh, I didn't want to get into a fight about anything I wanted to let you guys speak and so he's no 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 I want to keep talking I want to keep talking and he started showing me these slides of, of cryptids of you know McKillian Bembe and, and the Thunderbird and, and these other things and he says, well what's this what's this and I said well that's Bigfoot and he, he sort of, he sort of a little, was a little upset that I actually <laughs> knew what this was and he shows me another slide he says well what's that and I said well it's a pterodactyl it's a, it's a painting of a pterodactyl No, no, it's 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 the Thunderbird. It's the Thunderbird. I said, well, it's a painting of a pterodactyl. Uh, (laughs) Then he showed me a you know he showed me a picture of sort of a dinosaur crashing through some some sort of like a jungle scene. And by now I know where he's going with it. He says, well, what's this? I said, well, it's probably Macielian Bembe. And then he really got mad because I knew what this was. And so, well, how do you explain that? How do you explain that? I said, well, I don't explain it. It's it's a myth. Bring one in. Bring a real one in, and we'll you know we can talk about it. Um, what, the, what, what I find interesting and sort of amusing about the creationist attempt to embrace cryptozoologists because most of them won't do it, uh, because they sort of sense that that's sort of a road that if they go down, they can get in more trouble than it's worth. But if, for example, we do find a dinosaur wandering around the Congo, um, it doesn't necessarily prove young Earth. It just simply proves that uh, dinosaurs lasted beyond the point in which we thought they did. Uh, And so the the belief by some creationists that if you prove that dinosaurs are still around, um, or if you prove that Bigfoot exists, that you'll somehow undermine the notion of evolution. And and it's just not going to happen, because it doesn't, logically.
2: That's a really interesting point. I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, right now, as we speak uh, here in October, there's actually an alleged chupacabra that's being uh, exhibited at a creationist museum outside of Syracuse. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, I wrote a wrote a piece on it, and it's um, it's it's almost certainly a coyote. And sure. interesting to see how much you paid for it. But uh, yeah, he's he's convinced that this this uh, so called chupacabra in scare quotes um, is going to is going to you know embarrass and refute science. Right. And uh, and it never does. No, it doesn't. And, and you know, if if anything, I I I think people
3: who if you believe that Bigfoot is real, if you believe that chupacabra is real, God bless you. You know. Um, the, the people who are going to prove this one way or another are not going to be mainstream scientists because they don't think it exists uh, if we ever find out that Bigfoot is real it's going to be proven by a cryptozoologist so I, I have to give them that uh, but I, I think the, the creations want to do this, go ahead, I love it I, I find it fascinating, I want to see more uh, if they do find a real true Kakavel, let's, let's take a look at it uh, and, and you know, you're, you're, you're not going to undermine the idea of evolution I just was having a discussion with some of my students, because I don't know if you're aware of this, but uh, an, anti- or, uh, an anti-evolution organization just put out uh, an edition of The Origin of Species with a, with a long, rambling um, introduction, essentially arguing that Darwin was this horrible person and one of my students had read it and said, well, you know, what do you think about this? Is, was Darwin really, uh, you know, this bad guy? And I said, well, first of all, he wasn't. If you really want to read an excellent book on Darwin's uh, anti-slavery, pro-abolition feelings, you have to get Adrian Desmond and Jim Morris' recent book, Darwin's Sacred Cause. Um, but even if the anti-evolutionists are correct, even if Darwin really was this terrible, awful, racist bastard, it still doesn't mean that evolution doesn't work. Uh, Isaac Newton was a peculiar guy, but that doesn't mean if you jump off the roof of your house, you're not going to fall. And so it doesn't matter. You can attack the, the theorist all you want. The The, the notion itself is still going to be there.
1: You've already made clear that your your theory is is uh, not necessarily a serious theory, but, but it occurred to me that like by 1865, when uh, Sabin Baron Gould wrote his book of werewolves, that was also contemporaneous with, you know, the horrors of war coming into people's living room through the development of photography, mm-hmm. and, right. and so I was wondering, how much do you think the development of photography also impacted the, I guess, the lessening of fears of the supernatural when there were so many real world horrors that people could suddenly see for themselves.
3: Uh, well, I would, I would question whether or not that really did undermine the supernatural, because what happens is, following the Civil War, you get. Uh, a, a real surge in interest in spiritualism. Uh, now, obviously, spiritualism begins before the Civil War, but after the war, there there's this real kind of widespread interest in spiritualism in in the United States because so many people lose loved ones in the war and they're desperate to try to contact them. And so, far from far from I think undermining uh, supernatural belief, photography helped um, promote it. I mean, you have a whole craze of spirit photography that, that really starts after the Civil War.
1: Wow. So what, that was, are you talking about like the, uh, the Fox Sisters? And
3: the- right. Well, the Fox Sisters, the, the, the notion of, of spiritualism in North America uh, begins in the 1830s. But, and, there's, and, and very quickly, there's a lot of interest in it. But there's this kind of nationwide surge following the Civil War. Because so many people have lost loved ones, and what what may have seemed like just a sort of a silly belief prior to that, suddenly like, well, if, if this is something I might be able to contact my dead son or my dead father with, I'll I'll give it a shot.
1: Right. I think I even remember Lincoln and, he, Lincoln and his wife wanting to try to contact their dead son.
2: Well, it was mostly his wife.
1: Yeah. Right. And he, soon after,
2: William Mumler began faking spirit photos. Right. Right. Gotcha.
1: Okay.
3: Yes, yeah, so that, that's the thing, that's, the, that's one of the things about the history of science. We like to think that it's this great, and it certainly is, I'm, I'm certainly pro-revolution, I'm pro-science, um, but we, we, we have this missed, misconstrued notion that science sweeps away the supernatural and science sweeps away the dark corners, uh, and sometimes it certainly does but sometimes it allows for the dark corners to grow. And in, in a way, science when, when science does do that, it makes it even more difficult because we have come to, in the, in the 21st century, we have come to believe that science is the final arbiter on all knowledge. So if, if someone out there says, well, um, if, if Bigfoot is a, is, is a primate, it's an evolutionary creature, so therefore science supports it and it must be real, so I'll believe in it. That's a jump, and so it doesn't. It doesn't always banish the the dark things that go bump in the night. Gotcha. Sometimes it helps them to grow.
0: So I was going to ask, uh, why do you think uh, werewolves seem to be so popular in in uh, current pop culture again, or do you think they never really went away?
3: Yeah, I'm not well. I think it. it I think it is a little more popular, certainly in the twentieth century, since the introduction of, of the cinema. Um, but for my for my own, I always. Preferred the werewolf over the vampire. The vampire always seemed like a, you know, sort of the the pompous ass of the monster world, where the werewolf seemed like a more tragic and sympathetic figure to me. But that's just it, that's just me.
0: Do you think the interest has been pretty consistent in werewolves? Or? um
3: The I, I think the popular. Certainly the popular print interest or, or cinema interest is, is greater now than it was in the past. Uh, there aren't that many werewolf novels, while there are lots of vampire novels in the late 19th century. Yeah. You know, a lot of ghost stories, a lot of ghost novels, a lot of vampire novels, very few uh, werewolf literature.
1: And now that's, uh, there's, there's tons of vampires and, and still lesser Number of werewolf novels, but the paranormal romance field is huge right now with vampires, right? And yeah, werewolves. and apparently
3: somewhere along the line, the vampires and the werewolves um, were closely linked in, in ways that they were never in the past.
1: Right. That's I probably. I mean, this is just a guess. I haven't actually done the research, but the uh, I do a lot of gaming <laughs> and the White Wolf books. That's, All right. Yeah, the, the White Wolf uh, werewolf. Uh, let's see. Let's see. Vampires: The Requiem and werewolf the apocalypse i forget all the names of their books but the they, they, they tied together you know werewolf and vampire lore and then of course there were the uh the, mo- the movies with uh, Kate cape beckinsale which also had like a long-standing war which seemed pretty much a ripoff of white wolf but right i
2: don't i don't think people are watching those films for the werewolves like uh
1: well <laughs> yeah i think
2: it's the black leather
1: <laughs> that, c- that could be true all the uh euro trash and the violence i don't know so and uh
3: and, and vampires have a better wardrobe.
1: They are very fashionable, you know, in, in the uh, all they need to do now is walk slowly from explosions as though they don't care. I'll, I'll, i right, come <laughs> yeah, in, right. I'm in, so. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I read a lot of the, the, the gaming stuff and that, that, that's been, it seems to me that that's a white wolf thing and people have just picked up on it. But according, you know, white wolf pretty much ripped off Anne Rise, uh, in, in, mm-hmm. their, in their interpretation, so. Uh, that's again, that's just opinion. But uh, So, tell us about your new book, The Pseudoscience, A Critical Encyclopedia.
3: Oh, um, it's, well, it's supposed to be out pretty much now. It's a, it's, that's what they told me. That's what my publisher, Greenwood, said. Uh, it's called Pseudoscience, A Critical Encyclopedia. And I was asked to write this a couple of years ago by Greenwood Press. And they said, you know, we'd like you to do, uh, we want to put out an encyclopedia of pseudoscience. And I said, you know, sure, I'll do it. Um, but as I began to put together the proposal for it I, I watch a lot of TV and I yell at my TV a lot uh, I, I watch a lot of stuff on on the, the Learning Channel and Smithsonian channel and 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 I see these shows about the supernatural and I love watching ghost hunters uh, but I, I, I end up yelling at the TV Um which is really sad. Does it help? Uh, but yeah, because, because they make they make such statements and backed up with with no historical scholarship, with no scientific acumen, not even a sense of literary flourish. And so, when I sat down to do this book on pseudoscience, I said, you know, I'm not going to I'm not going to do just your average straightforward A to Z. Here is what the uh, you know here's what uh, uh, red mercury is, and this is what a, a, a Uh, a a flying saucer looks like. Uh, I wanted to examine it. I wanted to write it in a way that when readers read it, they would not just see some some fun information about interesting topics, but learn to think scientifically, learn to think uh, about the nature of the philosophy of science, learn to distinguish between what is real science and what isn't, uh, and to kind of see it as rather, rather than just a a compendium of a bunch of things in alphabetical order to make it a, a kind of connected work that could read like, not like an encyclopedia, but uh, as a complete work and in which you would be constantly asking questions about, uh, well, if you're, if you're looking at ghosts, what is it about ghosts that makes it pseudoscientific? What is it about ghosts that if we wanted it to be scientific, we would have to do to, in order to make it scientific? Uh, and so I approached it from that point of view as a, as a learning device for studying uh, the difference between genuine science and pseudoscience
2: sounds great look forward to seeing it well like I said it's you can you're, you you can order it now
3: uh, and they told me in the middle of October it would be available and it's now the middle of October so hopefully it's uh, you can get it
1: what what did you find the most interesting like what was the best pseudoscience you'd never heard of or what
3: oh oh hmm, good question Um, I'd heard about most of the stuff I did. There's a few things that I'd seen since I've put in the final manuscript that I wish I had put in, uh, but maybe they'll let me do a second volume. I can put all that stuff in. The thing that struck me, the the one thing I really wasn't aware of at the time um, that, that I that I did include, which not only made me scratch my head but made me sort of angry, uh, was this concept of gay repair theory, uh, theory or gay repair therapy oh boy. Yeah. where you have – Christian fundamentalists who think that they, you can sort of force a person to not be gay anymore in the lengths that they go and the genuine harm that is being done to people uh, through this so that was the, that was the thing that I uh, that most caught my uh, attention and and you know the this monster doesn't make me angry but this sort of made me angry
1: yeah that's uh know, yeah, I never really thought about that as a pseudoscience because it seemed almost like a magical approach mm-hmm. um, wow so are they re-
3: and what's really interesting is that one of the one of the one of the leaders of the gay repair therapy movement uh, apparently had a bit of a lapse and came out and said, "Look, I'm gay, and that's it. I can't change," and that was a bit of a blow to the overall movement.
1: <laughs> like that's really surprising, <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, yeah, but you know, I, I'm a big advocate for gay rights and gay equality, and uh, well, civil rights because I think you know we all sure. have those things. So. Uh, that's, yeah, that, I really hadn't looked into that very much except for the sort of comical takes that, like, the the, the Daily Show and, uh, Colbert, Colbert mm-hmm. had done on them, but, uh, right. so. Well, it isn't
3: a sort of inherently funny idea until you see. The actual human toll that it takes.
2: Yeah, that it's not so funny. You know, if somebody
3: believes in Bigfoot and I and I disagree, that's fine. You know, nobody's getting hurt by it. Uh, you know, if you want to believe in Nessie or if you want to believe in UFOs or whatever, but uh, there there are there are pseudo ideas that that do have real world costs, uh, and that's one of them.
1: Yeah, I think so.
3: Great. Well, it was, uh, thanks for having me on, and you know, anytime. And
1: uh, it was fun. Hopefully you'll get the uh, the Monster Talk bump with your books. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, one last thing. The um, here at Kane, where we have a we have a historical lecture series, and in the first week of December, I'm going to be giving the uh, the, the talk on Darwin and Werewolves. So, if anybody's in the New Jersey area, uh, we'll be putting it up online. Uh, you can see it, and it, it'll be a free event, so people can come by.
1: Excellent. Great. Thank you very very much for your time. Great. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of Monster Talk. Today you heard about werewolves, the role of Darwin's theory of evolution in banishing these creatures to the world of myth, and insights into the relationship between cryptozoology and creationism. Our guest today was Dr. Brian Regal, and your hosts were myself, Blake Smith, Benjamin Radford, and Dr. Karen Stolzno. Monster Talk theme music by Peach Stealing Monkeys, used with permission. Monster Talk is produced with the support of I apologize, I have a kind of a funky voice. I have a little bit of a cold going, and I'm high on NyQuil. But other than that, I think this will be a great interview. <laughs> okay, great. So am I. <laughs>